Good morning. To those present on this bright, beautiful, and brisk fall day. And good morning and welcome to those watching remotely. Please join with me in our responsive call to worship found in our bulletins. You have called us this day, O oh God, from our many demands to be in your grace. You search us and strengthen us to change our lives in healing and creative ways. Let us worship in good faith, hope, love, and joy, committing to the fresh and renewed life that you seek for us. Guide our hands and our thoughts, O God. Strengthen us and grant us full courage as we gather in prayer, praise, and appreciation for all that you give. Let's now pray together as one church family. God of recreation and renewal, we welcome your spirit and your presence this morning. As we relish this time that brings us together to reconnect, replenish, and become restored in so many ways. We give thanks for our sacred connection with our church community, where we not only find our spiritual rest and support, but where we build and strengthen our friendships and our families. And we give thanks for the many ways that we reconnect with you. And in so doing, reconnect with the very best of life, with the very best of others, and with the very best of ourselves. And so, God, we pray that we not only continue to find our living presence in these ways, but that you help us continue to grow as you open our hearts, sharpen our minds, and lead us to a more fulfilling and loving life. This we pray in the spirit of Christ who taught us to be together and to pray together saying, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespassed against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.
please be seated. Good morning, church family. It is lovely to see you in this beautiful autumn light. And um, I have a number of announcements and opportunities, actually quite a few. So while we listen to these announcements, if you wouldn't mind taking out the friendship register, the little black book, if you are new and visiting, we'd love to know who you are. Write us a note, let us know how you're doing. And um, our first big announcement is we'd like to thank and welcome Dave Stewart, my classmate and our beloved moderator to the pulpit today. We can't wait to hear his words. Um, we also have a number of announcements related to SCC's Mental Health Awareness Month, which is this month. We are postponing today's second hour, which was going to take place after the service. We'll reschedule this as soon as possible. And then we have a couple um, rescheduling. So on October 16th, it was the 23rd, it is now the 16th, Dr. Lisa Miller will present findings from her book, The Awakened Brain. It will be a very exciting event. I hope you can come. And then on October 23rd, we'll have the mental health best practices for middle and high school youth and parents. Another exciting event happening this month is you can mark your calendar for Oktoberfest, which is taking place Friday, October 14th at 7 p.m. Be there um, in Fellowship Hall, and you can let Pam know that you're coming. And then also, if you're considering becoming a member here at Southport Congregational, please join us on Sunday, October 23rd at 4 p.m. in the library. It's a great opportunity to meet with our ministers, the leaders of boards and committees, and find out more about this church and how you can join our family. New members will be installed during worship on November 6th, so mark that on your calendars as well. And then as it becomes autumn, it is time for the annual holiday food basket sign up. You'll be receiving an email um, this Tuesday for you to sign up for needed donations. It's a great way to help our community during this holiday season. It is also the season of Rooms with a View. Um, so tickets are on sale now. Reminder that this is the week for a special church member discount for the opening party and to see all the events. So make sure to sign up for that and take advantage of that. Also posters are available if you have a business or a place that you would like to advertise for Rooms with a View, we'd love that. Um, and then another fun announcement is that tonight at 5 p.m. on the Pequot Library lawn, it's going to be the Southport Globe Onion Festival. I am not from here. I have no idea what this is. This sounds so strange and so exciting, and I just think we should all, we should all really focus on that. <laughs> Um, there will be playtime after church school at 1 p.m. That brand new playground will be open for kids to play on, which is so exciting. And then today's altar flowers are given by Katie and Doug Goodman in loving memory of Doug's brother, Jeffrey Gordon Goodman. Um, and then finally, you have uh, certainly noticed that Paul and Laura are not here this morning. That's because they're in New Hampshire with Laura's sister and family dealing with a family emergency. And because this is Mental Health Awareness Month at Southport Congregational, Laura thinks it's really important that we know what's going on. And so I thank you for being allowed to share that her, her brother-in-law, who has suffered with severe depression and manic depression on and off for more than 20 years, is missing. Um, in the past few months, he was having difficulty with his medications and he often would not take them. 
and on Friday he was in a depressive state and was heading to his psychiatric appointment, and he never showed up. Um, there's absolutely no evidence outside of his parked car as to what might have happened to him or where he might be or have gone and they're searching. And so at this time, Laura and Paul and the family humbly ask for and greatly appreciate your prayers for a resolution to this tragic situation. So they will be back as they can be and um, just thank you so much for your prayers during this difficult time and a great reminder that mental health is physical health, that mental health is incredibly important, and that's something that we should honor and cherish in our young ones and in people of all ages. Um, so we, before we have a beautiful, beautiful anthem by our junior choir, whom we love so much, I'd like to welcome up Philip for a special announcement of his own. Good morning. Um, I thank you for uh, inviting me up, Julianne, and for reminding us that uh, this is Mental Health Awareness Month in our church. And I have been thinking about, uh, Paul asked me to speak regarding the children's programs earlier this week, and I've been thinking about what I want to share with you, but the news we just received has sort of uh, uh, distracted me from what I was thinking. So I just think maybe we could take a moment together to uh, send a prayer to Paul and Laura as they deal with what's going on with their family. Thank you. Our children's programs are a place where we take uh, the mental health of all of the people in our community very seriously. So it's Mental Health Awareness Month in our church, but that's just a reflection of the fact that as a community, we look out for each other in every way uh, all year long. And nowhere is that perhaps more important than in our programs for our children. So our kids are about to come up and perform for you a song that they've been rehearsing for about three weeks now, I think. Three short 45-minute rehearsals and a short three-minute maybe song. And that's the public-facing part of the choir program. But what you don't see, necessarily, uh, except, of course, our choir parents and families, is what lasts with the children long after the song has finished. And that's the sense of community they get out of being a part of choir and knowing that they are appreciated and noticed and that they matter, that their presence at choir matters, their presence here at church matters, to me, to everyone they're about to sing for, to their families and to our whole church community, and that they would be missed if they weren't here. So if, uh, if you think that might be a good fit for your child and a place where uh, they are accepted for who they are and, and uh, noticed and appreciated and valued, then come on down to choir and sing with us. Uh, the, Last Easter, we had a bunch of, including, I think, Mar Maggie joined us, many alums, 20-something-year-olds singing with the teen choir. And it's, you know, how do you get them to come back from like college and sing with some like sophomores in high school? And it isn't very hard. They want to, <laughs> so, which is really, really great. And that's because of the sense of community they have and the friendships that they've made by coming to church and coming to choir rehearsals and hanging out in, uh, in the choir room for these 45 minute rehearsals that result in these short songs 
but really result in friendships that can be life-changing and in a sense of self, of knowing that they matter, that can be life-saving. So come to choir, it'll be fun. <laughs>
I do, and I'm going to give you a mic so oh. that you can tell the good people about oh. it. <laughs> Amazing. Hi. Okay. Tomorrow is Indigenous People's Day. Big word. <laughs> indigenous. Does anyone know what indigenous means? You are so smart. You are so smart. Someone who's native to the land that we live in. Yes. So that's tomorrow. And today we're going to talk a little about that because it's a very important day, especially to this church, because where do we go on our mission trip over the summer? At your table. And who lives there? Indigenous people. Amazing. Yes. Okay. Raise of hand. Do any of you speak another language? Okay. A little bit. Does anyone's parents speak another language? I know some. Yes. Yes. Do any of your grandparents speak another language? Yes. Yes. If your parent does, I think that your grandparents do, possibly too. Okay, well, my mom's first language was Italian. But when she started kindergarten, her teachers would not allow her to speak Italian. They only wanted her to speak English, only English. They would get in big trouble if the parents heard any Italian come out of their mouths. So after a while, they just stopped speaking Italian. They stopped speaking it with each other. They spoke a little bit with their parents. But once they were kind of hanging out with their friends a lot, it was all English, and they forgot a lot of the Italian. And it's really sad, because it's cool to know another language, right? It's a big talent. It's awesome. So this also happened to most of the indigenous people here in our countries. When they went to school, they were forced to only speak English, not their native language. And this is true on Pine Ridge, where Red Shirt Table is. So, on Pine Ridge, does anyone know what the language is at Red Shirt Table? Alex, you have a guess? No? It's called, yes, it's on this paper. <laughs> You're very right. Lakota. Can you guys say that? Lakota. Good, amazing. Um, and I'm going to teach you guys a little Lakota today. That way, when you guys are old enough to come on the reservation with us, um, you can show your appreciation for the people's language, their native language. All right, I need a helper. Um, Amelia, can you come up for me? Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> can you hold this up for your friends? Maybe show the people. It's the word. Want to turn around, show everyone. It's a word we're going to learn today. All right, back around. Thank you, honey. So today we're going to learn how to say thank you because that's really important. When we go to the reservation, we have to be grateful, go with grateful hearts because they're allowing us to come into their home. Now, how we say this, we're going to repeat after me because you can see it looks very complicated. <laughs> so, ready everyone? P, la, ma, ya, ye. P, la, ma, ya, ye. Amazing. So now you guys know. Thank you, Amelia. Thank you. Sit down. Um, thank you. So now you guys know how to say thank you when you go to Red Shirt. And that's actually a new word for me as well. I didn't know how to say that either. So we learned something today. So let's pray. Dear God, 
Thank you for my words, which I can use to make a difference. Help me to speak against bad things and speak only good things into existence. Help us to do so to support our indigenous friends. Amen. Let's go to chapel. to be praying all morning, but we continue our prayer now with our pastoral prayer. And as we do so, I ask you to consider some of the following people. First, we pray for Laura's brother-in-law and her sister, that they may find him and answers, that the love and strength of God may support them and uplift them and envelop them in this difficult time. We pray for all those who are going through major life transitions, that God may give them strength and courage and peace and discernment as they enter into the unknown. So too do we pray for all those who are healing from recent surgeries and all those who are continuing treatment for various forms of cancer and chemotherapy. 
We pray for those communities still recovering from hurricanes. And we pray for the people of Iran during this incredibly difficult politically conflict, political conflict. May God uplift the women who are standing up for their rights and the entire nation as it finds and develops and fights for its values in life. And on this Indigenous Days weekend, we pray for our Indigenous brothers and sisters and friends, both those whom we know and love in South Dakota and those whom we have fellowshiped with here in the state of Connecticut, and all those tribes and communities and people who have stewarded the land, not only upon which our nation stands, but upon which this church stands. We pray for all those who continue to live with the consequences of colonization, and we pray for a more communal, more hopeful future. And so with these prayers and all those in our hearts and minds, let us come to the Lord. Lord of light and love and all that we can neither fathom nor describe, even imagine, today we come to you where we are, in red velvet pews, in couches, in cars, anywhere, Lord, where we have been and where we will be, we stand before you, we sit before you, we gather here in your presence now. And we recognize, Lord, the gap. We recognize that you are light and love and mercy and justice and all that is good and right. And we strive for these things. And we do not always find them. Lord, there is weeping. There is seeking. There is loss and devastation and decay. And we need not pretend there isn't, God. Because we know that even in the midst of that, even in the midst of all the unknown, you meet us. You are there, Lord. The kingdom of heaven is not far, it is at hand. And so, Lord, we sit before you, we gather before you asking to feel your peace in our hearts, asking for us to feel your love and your mercy and your grace in our minds, our minds which confuse us, which muddy the waters, which Bring us trouble, Lord. We ask that you may be there instead and in the midst. And so too do we ask that you be in our spirits, Lord, that thing that we say and we describe but we cannot understand. May you course through our veins. May you be in our energy. May you be in our words. May you be in our words as we now pray, Lord, the words of your son, Black Elk who prayed to you, Grandfather, Great Spirit, once more behold me on earth and lean to hear our feeble voices. You, Lord, lived first, and you are older than all need, older than all prayer. All things belong to you, the two-legged, 
the four-legged, the wings of the air and all green things that live. You have set the powers of the four quarters of the earth to cross each other. You have made the cross the good road and the road of difficulties, and where they cross, the place is holy. Day in, day out, and forevermore, you are the life of things. Lord, we thank you that we are yours like all creatures of this earth. And Lord, we thank you that you have made us to cross the good road and the road of difficulties. And Lord, we thank you that it is holy ground upon which we gather to worship you and praise you and ask you to make all things new, to make peace settle here on earth and in our hearts. And so we pray this in the name of Jesus, who knew the crossing between good and difficulty, and in whose cross we live and are made new and clean and redeemed in perfect love. Amen. As we transition into our time of offering, um, I've been thinking a lot about a quote that has been going around on the internet and social media lately. And it says, we are not all in the same boat. We are in the same storm. Some have yachts, some have canoes, and some are drowning. So just be kind and help whoever you can. And I've been thinking about this quote a lot because as you know, on September 14th, Hurricane Fiona devastated the Caribbean, affecting Puerto Rico and the Dominican Republic. And then just last week, Hurricane Ian whipped through Florida, devastating lives and communities. And so in this time of offering, the United Church of Christ has established a Hurricane 2022 fund for victims of these tragic storms. And they write in their petition for our support we don't know what may come next within the next two months remaining in hurricane season. But we know that as a people of faith, we can show up through our prayers and giving for our most vulnerable neighbors and journey with them on the long road to recovery. With support, we can offer healing and resources through solidarity grants that support relief. In other words, we might not be in that boat, though, Many of us know friends and family or personally experience loss in Florida and Hurricane Ian. We might not be in that same boat, but we are in this same storm. And these are our people. And so at this time of offering, I ask you to 
take out um, your special yellow envelope offering to support the people whose lives have been devastated by these natural tragedies. You can Venmo your donation to Southport underscore congregational as long as you write hurricane relief in the description. And we just thank you so much for your generosity and for your prayers for this storm that we all are weathering together in different situations.
Receive these gifts, O God, as expressions of our gratitude and loving devotion. May they be used to increase your love among us and all people. Amen. Our scripture reading this morning comes from the letter of St. Paul to the Romans. And it reads, For as in one body we have many members, and not all the members have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ. And individually, we are members one of another. We have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, prophecy in proportion to faith, ministry in ministering, the teacher in teaching, the exhorter in exhortation, the giver in generosity, the leader in diligence, the compassionate in cheerfulness. Let us hear and contemplate these words and be blessed in the ways they motivate and touch our lives. So unlike most of Paul's letters, which were written to the early house churches or to individuals who were involved in Paul's missions, Romans is more of a lengthy theological guide for Jews and Gentiles who became early Christ followers. In one of the most dangerous places at that time to be a Christian, the center of the Roman Empire, Paul wrote this letter to the Romans while he was in Corinth, Greece, around 20 years after Jesus' death in anticipation of visiting Rome. And one of the things that he's trying to do is to help this new church, this burgeoning community, see what it means to be a community in Christ. He's explaining that when we are in community, we should think of ourselves as all together, one body. And as individuals, we are, as he says, members of one another. We are inextricably connected to each other. So that's a foundational concept. But he goes on to say that each of us has our own calling in this one body. My energy, my acts, my words, my presence, they all impact you, and yours impact me, because we are one. We cannot and we do not operate independently of one another. We have a long tradition in this country of individualism, which I love. It's led to great innovation and creativity, but sometimes it's at the expense of caring for one another and entering into what I call non-transactional, that is truly communal relationships. And by that I mean relationships where the relationship itself is the end goal, 
It's not a means to some other goal. Our relationship and our relationships with one another, as Paul describes in Romans, are necessary for the vitality of this one body of humanity. And the more we pursue our individual interests at the expense of our higher calling to serve and feed the one body, we fail as a species. I'm looking out at Jamie Flink, who I didn't think I was going to say anything about because I didn't know he was going to be here, but I think of Jamie as someone who I will talk about in concept, as somebody who is serving a higher obligation, a young man who's decided that he's going to West Point. He's serving a duty. Now, my assignment today from Paul was to preach on why in God's name I'm leaving Cravath to go to Yale Divinity School. (laughs) This isn't easy. There's still a great deal of mystery in this for me. I can't say exactly why I've diverted from the ordinary path of a Cravath partner to do this. And I can't give some coherent and profound life narrative that may satisfy someone or that somebody might be able to relate to. It's a strange thing how sometimes you feel a call that's so powerful, it's so compelling, and you can't put it into a coherent narrative. But sometimes the only way to figure it out, the only way to know the why of the call is to get to where you're called to go. So I'm okay with knowing that this is where I'm supposed to be without having a clear answer to why. I'm a lawyer without an answer. (laughs) Imagine that. But I'll do my best to at least talk about the things that landed me in Divinity School and hopefully they're more sort of broadly applicable to how we view life and I hope that you find them relevant as well. The truth of this, I believe, is something that's far more profound than what I could possibly put into words. And it has nothing to do with me as an individual. It has to do with being blessed with observations about the world, becoming liberated, and having opportunity. But perhaps the most powerful force underlying this is you, literally, the loving people here at my church. There is deep truth in this community. Coincidentally, Philip earlier was repeating the word community when he was talking about the children's choir. We didn't You have an impact in ways that you can't even imagine. Now, while I may not know the why, I am confident of the why not. That is why I did not go to divinity school. So let me get that out of the way first, just in case some of these things are kind of going through your head. First, I did not have a personal encounter with Jesus or some other conventional mystical experience uh, that made God's love tangible to me, 
or call me to serve God. I used to actually think that that was a prerequisite to going to divinity school. That didn't happen to me. Second, I didn't think that this would be a relaxing way to spend my retirement years. <laughs> and third, this may sound funny, but it's, it's, it's true. I did not really relish the notion of hanging out with a bunch of 25-year-olds who made me very self-conscious about my white privilege. There's an entirely new vocabulary about social issues that I'm learning. Julie gave me a primer before I went on the words I was supposed to use and how I was supposed to announce my preferred gender pronouns when I introduced myself. You know, and this is a good thing. I'm not ridiculing. This is a good thing. It's important to operating in this space that we understand how younger people are thinking about the world and social issues and words, because words matter. Okay, I've gotten that out of the way. Let me try to say what I can about why and how this happened and, and relate that to this notion of community. So this is a life progression. It's an evolution. It's one continuous journey. Some people have said, this is a new journey for you. And I've said, no, it's not a new journey. It's one life adventure. It's meant to be lived out in unpredictable ways while trying to be keenly tuned into when you're called and where you're called to be, even if you can't map that out into the future. Andrew Malkin, who couldn't be with us this morning, he sent me an article from the current issue of The New Yorker, and it's called, Are You the Same Person You Used to Be? And in the article, the author compares human beings to storm systems, where each individual storm has its own particular set of traits, but its future depends on a multitude of elements that are outside of itself, atmosphere and landscape, topography and geography, external factors outside of the storm itself, so that the fate of a hurricane is shaped by the air pressure in another locale. And it's shaped by the amount of time the hurricane spends out at sea picking up moisture before making landfall. Its path and its strength and its comp composition at any given time over the life of the hurricane are profoundly affected by so many things that are external to the hurricane. Forces the hurricane can't control. The author writes, quote, storms are shaped by the world and by other storms. And only an egomaniacal weather system believes in its absolute and unchanging individuality. So this is an excellent metaphor. When I try to answer Paul Whitmore's question, I keep coming back not to what is foundationally inside me, but rather like the hurricane, what I've seen, what I've absorbed, how I've been shaped by community and other human beings. What through no intentionality of mine, just by being in this world with others, has molded my views of my role in this one body or community of human beings of which I just happen to be a part. And when I say community, 
I mean it in the traditional sense of a group of people bound in common purpose, but also community simply in the ways that we commune one-on-one -on -one with each other. When we function together as many members of one body, as St. Paul says, each with a different purpose. Community comes in many forms. Connection with one another, taking part in a broader group of people, understanding our relationship with all of humanity, and ultimately internalizing our place as one with all of creation. So this push to YDS began in earnest with seeing what I can describe only as the work of God or the presence of God in unexpected places. But for me, always in the community of people. A lot of people have had the same experiences that I've had, but they've chosen not to see the presence of God because they've defined God in some way that requires them to see a human-like figure or some unusual presence in order for them to accept the presence of God. They've sort of set up the definition of God or their view or expectation of what, what God is so that they're never able to see God's presence. They've rigged the game, so to speak, so that it'll never happen for them. There's some will and there's some thought that needs to go into it to see God. For me, seeing God was about opening myself to a concept of God that could never be confined to human language and definition. It was about broadening my perspective to the view that the more we open our minds to what exists outside of us, what is not measurable by science and mathematics, love and beauty, morality and ethics, kindness, bliss, community, the more and more and more I could experience where God manifests in human life, even if I couldn't see God in a way that I could ever adequately describe in words. I've said this before when I've been up here, but I mean, how do you describe the experience of beauty in the compositions of Mozart, or the improvisation of John Coltrane, or whatever moves you musically? How do you describe the experience of a sunset, the experience of holding a dearly loved spouse or child, the miraculous athletic feats of Michael Jordan, Serena Williams, Aaron Judge? You can try to put those experiences into words, but those words will never capture the experience itself. I began noticing things that human beings just did for one another. For example, a community member suffers. There's a tragic loss. And what happens? For no self-serving reason, community members are drawn to the scene to provide food, support, presence. Why? Why do busy commuters on Metro North stop what they're doing to help a non-English speaking rider figure out where her station is? Why do we care for one another without any personal interest? 
Why are we drawn to one another in unusual ways? Some of you may be cynics. The cynic will tell you it's an evolutionary survival trait that we developed so that we'll be helped when we're in need ourselves. The cynic will always find the reductionist answer. Stanley Hauerwas, who's a theologian from Duke Divinity School, writes that cynicism is the, quote, rigorous and disciplined attempt to investigate the self-interest behind every moral claim. And that so many today rely on cynicism to sustain themselves because it helps us to avoid the loss of self by denying overriding loyalty to any cause or community. He says, in that process, we lose the very soil crucial to the growth of virtue, the self-esteem cultivated by the sense of sharing a worthy adventure. I chose to begin to see the beauty and love and human attraction for one another and the human sense of obligation to be with another in pain or loss as the presence of God itself. And the most apparent place where I saw the presence of God was in the prisons. That may seem like an unusual place to see God, in the dark and brutal and cruel existence of a prison. I've talked a little bit about this before, but a group of young Cravath Associates and I have been working with victims of domestic violence who have killed their abusers and are now serving life sentences in prison. Why would we do that? Why would anybody set aside a whole day to go back and forth to Bedford, New York, where the maximum security women's prison is, spend an hour or more clearing security, dealing with whatever arbitrary rules some officer puts in place that day, and then sit in a dirty room with no air conditioning on uncomfortable furniture for hours. It is very unfun. Why do you do that when you don't have to? This isn't to focus on me. This is about the observation that people are drawn to use their gifts to serve others. That may seem obvious to you. But I don't know why it should be. I don't know why that should necessarily be the case. The more time I spent there, the very real sense of connection and duty and obligation to the incarcerated community became apparent to me. Duty, obligation. If I, as a Cravath partner, with all the comforts that anyone could ask for, found the need to be at the Bedford Hills Correctional Facility, if a group of overworked Cravath associates were drawn to do the same, rather than spending time doing what it takes to make partner at Cravath. And when we are there, feel a profound connection to the individuals who had lived experiences that were about as different from ours as they could possibly be. That is the presence of God. That's the definition of God. If a human being who suffered the worst atrocities a person can inflict on another and been victimized from the time that they were a young child and then been thrown in prison for the rest of their life, if they can have a deep connection with me, can speak with me in a rational and insightful way rather than curling up in the corner waiting to die, that's God. That's where I see God. 
If we could overcome everything that our social, economic, and political structures tell us about these incarcerated individuals and feel a deep, inexplicable connection, that must be where God is. So that was a profound catalyst for deepening my recognition of what and where God is and how God operates. But that alone doesn't get you to give up a cravat partnership to go to divinity school. Once I saw that powerful presence of God, sort of stage two of this journey was asking myself what I was supposed to do with it. There's this major push to identify what brings happiness. There's a whole class on this at Yale College. It's the most popular class in Yale's history. And why not? You've all heard the advice that we give our, our young people to follow your passion. I personally don't believe that this is a helpful way to contemplate your life. I think the better question is one that derives from community. Rather than passion, which is a self-focused idea, I would prefer that we ask, where do I feel the most compelling duty in relation to serving a community? And by the way, that may change over time. When Jesus says, if you continue in my world, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free, he doesn't say the truth will make you happy. This isn't about our personal passion or happiness. It's about serving God's creation. It's about putting aside what we're taught is the most valuable thing, individual achievement to recognize that I have a duty, a role to play for a community. That may be in business, maybe in law, maybe in medicine, it may be in politics, it may be in music. It may even be, God forbid, in investment banking. <laughs> but I do think it helps to ask whether the pursuit is genuinely to serve a community. I came to the view that at least I, I won't speak for anyone else, I wasn't put on this earth to pursue happiness. Jesus doesn't preach happiness. Jesus preaches liberation. We think of liberation for the oppressed, the marginalized, and that is to be sure something that we can never become complacent about. But there's another way to think about liberation, which has nothing to do with socioeconomic status has to do with how much we live our lives bound by what we tell ourselves are the ways that we should measure the value of life. And if you're a lawyer who's reached the pinnacle of the profession with the ability to walk into any corporate boardroom in America and have immediate credibility, you hang on to that. You cling to that desperately. You protect that status and that income with every ounce of energy that you have at all costs but I began to see that I was shackled. Not in the sense that I'd grown accustomed to a lifestyle, a golden handcuff thing, but in the sense that my way of measuring the value of life, of my life at least, had changed. I was bound by the earthly metrics that we use to measure our worth, all of the things that are so ingrained in us about what it means to live a life worthy of respect and admiration. 
And that was at the expense of living a profound life adventure and experiencing community with the rest of humanity. That was a big, big step. You can intellectualize that a lot, but to internalize it is something else. And doing that was the first step to liberation, which was a necessary part of this. The next sort of stage was identifying opportunity and, and the duty to seize it. I didn't just drop everything and go to divinity school. It's not like I just resigned one day from Cravath and said, I'm going to divinity school. We have the opportunity at Cravath to retire early at 55, which I turned last month. I haven't amassed enormous wealth so that this is easy. Unlike many of my partners, most of my partners, I haven't spent my entire career at Cravath since I was in my early 30s as a partner. But early retirement from the partnership was available to me, and Yale was 30, 40 minutes right up the road. And frankly, most important, my love, Peggy, and the captain of this life adventure that we have together was supportive. So this was an opportunity available to me, and I chose to see God's grace and providence in that. So having witnessed God adopted the objective of liberation and having opportunity, I saw no real choice in the matter. The call was compelling. And once you've witnessed the presence of God deeply enough in your soul that you can no longer push it away, once you sort of get the notion of liberation as Jesus teaches it, and once you have the opportunity, you discover that you don't have any choice. It becomes so obvious, it's out of your control, it's out of your hands. You can no longer live with yourself by not doing it. So I stepped off the hedonic treadmill. I had a duty, an obligation that was as clear as anything ever has been. Now there's one more thing I've got to say about community and I'll go back to where I started this. And that has everything to do with you, my church family. My community. Without you, I wouldn't have done this. Now you may rightly be saying, hey, don't blame us for this. <laughs> you hear a lot of people who deeply understand the human connection to the spirit. They're the spiritual but not religious people, the folks who don't want to be associated with a painful experience that they may have had with the church or they're fearful of the ways in which they might be perceived if they associate with a church, or people who just don't have the time for church. Those are the folks who, notwithstanding their deep appreciation for the beauty of the music and the art in the sanctuary, and the peace they derive from prayer, and the emotional support they need from church and religion and community when they're in pain, or when they want to get married, they still forego the church out of fear. I get that. But you are here. Don't lose sight of the importance of your presence here. Don't discount that. Sometimes it may feel like you're here for yourselves only, but the impact of your presence to everyone around you and everyone up here, that's powerful. It's palpable. You have that ability. Because you're here, you've shown me and others the presence of God in 
community. The power and strength of this community is enormous. It propels us when we need encouragement. It challenges us when we think we have it all figured out. It supports us when we're celebrating life. It lifts us up when we need hope. And it heals us when we're in pain. If a community, a family of people can have that power, that is where God is. That is where I want to be. That's where I need to be. Back to Romans. We each have a function as members of this body of Christ that we all are. We are members of one another. See that. Live that. Be that. Thank you. I am so grateful for you, my church community, my family in Christ, for the opportunities you've given me, your presence in my life, and your presence in the lives of each other. body, we have many members, 
For as in one storm, there are many systems, many boats. For as in one choir, there are many singers. This morning, we're a community. And as we leave these doors, may we not forget that. May we know that when we are lost, we're not alone. And so may we feel that. May God be in our eyes, helping us to see the links that unite us rather than the walls that divide us. May God be in our ears, helping us to hear the melody for each note. May God be in our mouths, helping us to speak truth in community. And may God be in our hands, our hearts, our spirits, our entire body, which works together to live according to that life and life in the fullest that we are here to pursue. May the Lord be with you. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit guide you and guide us together. Amen. <laughs>